Book Eighth, Chapter Two, of the Wings of the Dove. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Stearns. The Wings of the Dove, by Henry James. Book Eighth, Chapter Two. There was at last, with everything that made for it, an occasion when he got from Kate, on what she now spoke of as his eternal refrain, an answer of which he was to measure afterwards the precipitating effect. His eternal refrain was the way he came back to the riddle of Mrs. Lauder's view of her profit, a view so hard to reconcile with the chances she gave them to meet. Impatiently, at this, the girl denied the chances, wanting to know from him, with a fine irony that smote him rather straight, whether he felt their opportunities as anything so grand. He looked at her deep in the eyes when she had sounded this note. It was the least he could let her off with for having made him visibly flush. For some reason, then, with it, the sharpness dropped out of her tone, which became sweet and sincere. "'Meet, my dear man,' she expressively echoed, does it strike you that we get, after all, so very much out of our meetings? On the contrary, their starvation diet. All I mean is, and it's all I've meant from the day I came, that we at least get more than Aunt Maud. Ah, but you see, Kate replied, you don't understand what Aunt Maud gets. Exactly so, and it's what I don't understand that keeps me so fascinated with the question. She gives me no light. She's prodigious. She takes it as of a natural that at this rate I shall be making my reflections about you. There's every appearance for her, Kate went on, that what she had made her mind up to as possible is possible, that what she had thought more likely than not to happen is happening. The very essence of her, as you surely at this time have made out for yourself, is that when she adopts a view, she, well, to her own sense, really brings the thing about, fairly terrorizes with her view any opposite view, and those, not less, who represent that. I've often thought success comes to her, Kate continued to study the phenomenon, by the spirit in her that dares and defies her idea not to prove the right one. One has seen it so again and again, in the face of everything, become the right one. Densher had for this, as he listened, a smile of the largest response. Ah, my dear child, if you can explain, I, of course, need it not understand. I am condemned to that. He, on his side, presently explained. Only when understanding fails. He took a moment, then he pursued. Does she think she terrorizes us? To which he added, while, without immediate speech, Kate but looked over the place. Does she believe anything so stiff as that you've really changed about me? He knew now that he was probing the girl deep. Something told him so. But that was a reason the more. Has she got it into her head that you dislike me? To this, of a sudden, Kate's answer was strong. You could yourself easily put it there. He wondered. By telling her so? No, said Kate as with amusement at his simplicity. 
I don't ask that of you. Oh, my dear, Densher laughed. When you ask, you know, so little. There was a full irony in this, on his own part, that he saw her resist the impulse to take up. I'm perfectly justified in what I've asked, she quietly returned. It's doing beautifully for you. The rise again intimately met, and the effect was to make her proceed. You're not a bit unhappy. Oh, ain't I? he brought out very roundly. It doesn't practically show, which is enough for Aunt Maud. You're wonderful, you're beautiful, Kate said. And if you really want to know whether I believe you're doing it, you may take from me perfectly that I see it coming. With which, by a quick transition, as if she had settled the case, she asked him the hour. Oh, only twelve-ten. He had looked at his watch. We've taken but thirteen minutes. We've time yet. Then we must walk. We must go toward them. Densher, from where they had been standing, measured the long reach of the square. They're still in their shop. They're safe for half an hour. That shows, then. That shows, said Kate. This colloquy had taken place in the middle of Piazza San Marco, always as a great social saloon, a smooth-floored, blue-roofed chamber of amenity, favorable to talk, or rather, to be exact, not in the middle, but at the point where our pair had paused by a common impulse after leaving the great mosque-like church. It rose now, domed and pinnacled, but a little way behind them, and they had in front the vast empty space enclosed by its arcades, to which at that hour movement and traffic were mostly confined. Venice was at breakfast, the Venice of the visitor and the possible acquaintance, and, except for the parties of improportionate pigeons, picking up the crumbs of perpetual feasts, their prospect was clear, and they could see their companions hadn't yet been, and weren't for a while longer likely to be, disgorged by the lace-shop, in one of the loggy, where, shortly before, they had left them for a look-in, the expression was artfully dentures, at St. Mark's. Their morning had happened to take such a turn as brought this chance to the surface, yet his allusion, just made to Kate, hadn't been an overstatement of the general opportunity. The worst that could be said of the general opportunity was that it was essentially in presence, in presence of everyone, everyone consisting at this juncture, in a peopled world, of Susan Shepherd, Aunt Maud, and Milly. But the proof now, even in presence, the opportunity could become special, was furnished precisely by this view of the compatibility of their comfort with a certain amount of lingering. The others had assented to their not waiting in the shop. It was, of course, the least the others could do. What had really helped them this morning was the fact that, on his turning up, as he always called it, at the palace, Milly had not, as before, been able to present herself. Custom and use had hitherto seemed fairly established. On his coming round, day after day, eight days had been now so conveniently marked, their friends, Milly's and his, conveniently dispersed and left him to sit with her to luncheon. Such was the perfect operation of the scheme on which he had been, as he phrased it to himself, had out, so that certainly there was that amount of justification for Kate's vision of success. He had, for Mrs. Lowder, he couldn't help it while sitting there, the air, which was the thing to be desired, of no absorption 
and Kate sufficiently deep to be alarming. He had failed their young hostess each morning as little as she had failed him. It was only today that she hadn't been well enough to see him. That had made a mark all round. The mark was in the way in which, gathered in the room of state, with the place, from the right time, all bright and cool and beflowered, as always, to receive her descent, they, the rest of them, simply looked at each other. It was lurid, lurid in all probability, for each of them privately, that they had uttered no common regrets. It was strange for our young man above all that, if the poor girl was indisposed to that degree, the hush of gravity, of apprehension, of significance of some sort, should be the most of the case, that of the guests, could permit itself. The hush, for that matter, continued after the party of four had gone down to the gondola and taken their places in it. Milly had sent them word that she hoped they would go out and enjoy themselves, and this indeed had produced a second remarkable look, a look as of their knowing, one quite as well as the other, what such a message meant as provision for the alternative beguilement of Densher. She wished not to have spoiled his morning, and he had therefore, in civility, to take it as pleasantly patched up. Mrs. Stringham had helped the affair out, Mrs. Stringham, who, when it came to that, knew their friend better than any of them. She knew her so well that she knew herself as acting in exquisite compliance with conditions comparatively obscure. Approximately awful to them, by not thinking it necessary to stay at home. She had corrected the element of the perfunctory, which was the slight fault, for all of them, of the occasion. She had invented a preference for Mrs. Lauder and herself. She had remembered the fond dreams of the visitation of lace that had hitherto always been brushed away by accidents, and it had come up as well for her that Kate had, the day before, spoken of the part played by fatality in her own failure of real acquaintance with the inside of St. Mark's. Densher's sense of Susan Shepherd's conscious intervention had by this time a corner of his mind all to itself. Something that had begun for them at Lancaster Gate was now a sentiment clothed in a shape. Her action, ineffably discreet, had at all events a way of affecting him, as for the most part subtly, even when not superficially, in his own interest. They were not, as a pair, as a team, really united. There were too many persons, at least three, and too many things between them. But meanwhile, something was preparing that would draw them closer. He scarce knew what. Probably nothing but his finding, at some hour, when it would be a service to do so, that she had all the while understood him. He even had a presentiment of a juncture at which the understanding of everyone else would fail, and the steep little persons alone survive. Such was to-day, in its freshness, the moral air, as we may say, that hung about our young friends. These had been the small accidents and quiet forces to which they owed the advantage we have seen them in some sort enjoying. It seemed, in fact, fairly to deepen for them as they stayed their course again. The splendid square, which had so notoriously, in all the years, witnessed more of the joy of life than any equal area in Europe, furnished them, in the remoteness from earshot, with solitude and security. It was as if, being in possession, they could say what they liked, 
and it was also as if, in consequence of that, each had an apprehension of what the other wanted to say. It was most for all of them, moreover, as if this very quantity, seated on their lips in the bright, historic air, were the only sign for their cars, was a flutter of the doves, begot in the heart of each a fear. There might have been a betrayal of that in the way Densher broke the silence resting on her last words. What did you mean just now that I can do to make Mrs. Lauder believe? For myself, stupidly, if you will, I don't see. For the moment I can't lie to her. What else there is but lying? Well, she could tell him. You can say something both handsome and sincere to her about Milly, whom you honestly like so much. That wouldn't be lying. And coming from you, it would have an effect. And don't, you know, say much about her. And Kate put before him the fruit of observation. You don't, you know, speak of her at all. And has Aunt Maud, Densher asked, told you so? Then, as the girl, for answer, only seemed to bethink herself, "'You must have extraordinary conversations,' he exclaimed. "'Yes,' she had bethought herself. "'We have extraordinary conversations.' His look, while their eyes met, marked him as disposed to hear more about them. But there was something in her own, apparently, that defeated the opportunity. He questioned her in a moment on a different matter, which had been in his mind a week, yet in respect to which he had had no chance so good as this. Do you happen to know, then, as such wonderful things pass between you, what she makes of the incident, the other day, of Lord Mark's so very superficial visit? His having spent here, as I gather, but the two or three hours necessary for seeing our friend, and yet taken no time at all, since he went off by the same night's train, for seeing any one else. What can she make of his not having waited to see you, or to see herself, with all he owes her. Oh, of course, said Kate. She understands. He came to make Milly his offer of marriage. He came for nothing but that. As Milly wholly declined it, his business was for the time at an end. He couldn't quite on the spot turn around to make up to us. Kate had looked surprised that, as a matter of taste, on such an adventurer's part, Densher shouldn't see it. But Densher was lost in another thought. Do you mean that when, turning up myself, I found him leaving her. That was what had been taking place between them. Didn't you make it out, my dear? Kate inquired. What sort of blundering weathercock, then, is he? The young man went on in his wonder. Oh, don't make too little of him, Kate smiled. Do you pretend that Milly didn't tell you? How great an ass he had, he had made of himself. Kate continued to smile. You are in love with her, you know. He gave her another long look. Why, since she has refused him, should my opinion of Lord Mark show it? I'm not obliged, however, to think well of him for such treatment of the other persons I've mentioned, and I feel I don't understand from you why Mrs. Lauder should. She doesn't, but she doesn't care, Kate explained. You know perfectly the terms on which lots of London people live together even when they're supposed to live very well. He's not committed to us. He was having his try. Mayn't an unsatisfied man, she asked, always have his try? And come back afterwards, with confidence and a welcome, to the victim of his inconsistency? Kate consented, as for argument, to be thought of as a victim. 
Oh, but he has had his try at me, so it's all right. Through your also having, you mean, refused him? She balanced an instant, during which Densher might have just wondered if pure historic truth were to suffer a slight strain. But she dropped on the right side. I haven't let it come to that. I've been too discouraging. Aunt Maud, she went on, now as lucid as ever, considers no doubt that she has a pledge from him in respect to me, a pledge that would have been broken if Milly had accepted him. As the case stands, that makes no difference. Densher laughed out. It isn't his merit that he has failed. It's still his merit, my dear, that he's Lord Mark. He's just what he was, and what he knew he was. It's not for me, either, to reflect on him after I've so treated him. Oh, said Denter impatiently, you've treated him beautifully. I'm glad, she smiled, that you can still be jealous. But before he could take it up, she had more to say. I don't see why it need puzzle you that Milly's so-marked line gratifies Aunt Maud more than anything else can displease her. What does she see but that Milly herself recognizes her situation with you as too precious to be spoiled? Such a recognition as that can't but seem to her to involve in some degree your own recognition, out of which she therefore gets it that the more you have for Milly, the less you have for me. There were moments again, we know that from the first, they had been numerous, when he felt with a strange mixed passion the mastery of her mere way of putting things. There was something in it that bent him at once to conviction and to reaction, and this effect, however, it be named, now broke into his tone. Oh, if she began to know what I have for you! It wasn't ambiguous, but Kate stood up to it. Luckily for us, we may really consider she doesn't, so successful have we been. Well, he presently said, I take from you what you give me, and I suppose that, to be consistent, to stand on my feet where I do stand at all, I ought to thank you. Only, you know, what you give me seems to me, more than anything else, the larger and larger size of my job. It seems to me more than anything else what you expect of me. It never seems to me, somehow, what I may expect of you. There's so much you don't give me. She appeared to wonder. And pray, what is it I don't? I give you proof, said Densher. You give me none. What then do you call proof? She after a moment ventured to ask. You're doing something for me. She considered with surprise. Am I not doing this for you? Do you call this nothing? Nothing at all. Ah, I risk, my dear, everything for it. They had strolled slowly further, but he was brought up short. I thought you exactly contend that, with your aunt so bamboozled, you risk nothing. It was the first time since the launching of her wonderful idea that he had seen her at a loss. He judged the next instant, moreover, that she didn't like it, either the being so or the being seen, for she soon spoke with an impatience that showed her as wounded an appearance that produced in himself, he no less quickly felt, a sharp pang of indulgence. What then do you wish me to, to risk? The appeal from danger touched him, but all to make him, as he would have said, worse. What I wish is to be loved. How can I feel, at this rate, that I am? Oh, she understood him, for all she might so bravely disguise it, 
and that made him feel straighter than if she hadn't. Deep always was his sense of life with her, deep as it had been for the moment of those signs of life that in the dusky London of two winters ago they had originally exchanged. He had never taken her for unguarded, ignorant, weak, and if he put to her a claim for some intenser faith between them, this because he believed it could, be reach, it could reach her, and she could meet it. I can go on, perhaps, he said, with help, but I can't go on without. She looked away from him now, and it showed him how she understood. We ought to be there, I mean, when they come out. They won't come out, not yet, and I don't care if they do. To which he straightway added, as if to deal with a charge of, of selfishness that his words, standing for himself, struck him as enabling her to make. Why not have done with it all, and face the music as we are? It broke from him in perfect sincerity. Good God, if you'd only take me! It brought her eyes round to him again, and he could see how, after all, somewhere deep within, she felt his rebellion more sweet than bitter. Its effect on her spirit, and her sense was visibly to hold her an instant. We've gone too far. She nonetheless pulled herself together to reply. Do you want to kill her? He had an hesitation that wasn't all candid. Kill, you mean, Aunt Maud? You know whom I mean. We've told too many lies. Oh, at this his head went up. I, my dear, have told none. He had brought it out with, with a sharpness that did him good. But he had naturally, none the less, to take the look it made her give him. Thank you very much. His expression, however, failed to check the words that had already risen to his lips. Rather than lay myself open to the least appearance of it, I'll go this very night. Then go, said Kate Croy. He knew after a little, while they walked on again together, that what was in the air for him and disconcertingly, was not the violence, but rather the cold quietness of the way this had come from her. They walked on together, and it was for a minute as if their difference had become of a sudden, in all truth, a split, as if the basis of his departure had been settled. Then, incoherently, and still more suddenly, recklessly, moreover, since they now might easily, from under the arcades, be observed, he passed his hand into her arm with a force that produced for them another pause. I'll tell any lie you want, any your idea requires, if you'll only come to me. Come to you? Come to me. How? Where? She spoke low, but there was somehow, for his uncertainty, a wonder in her being so equal to him. To my rooms, which are perfectly possible, and in taking which, the other day, I had you, as you must have felt, in view. We can arrange it with two grains of courage. People in our case always arrange it. She listened for the good information, and there was support for him, since it was a question of his going step by step, in the way she took no refuge, in showing herself shocked. He had, in truth, not expected of her that particular vulgarity, but the absence of it only added the thrill of a deeper reason to his sense of possibilities. For the knowledge of what she was, he had absolutely to see her now, incapable of refuge, stand there for him in all the light of the day, and of his admirable, merciless meaning, 
for mere listening, in fact, made him even understand himself as he hadn't yet done. Idea for idea, his own was thus already, and in the germ beautiful. There's nothing for me possible but to feel that I'm not a fool. It's all I have to say, but you must know what it means. With you, I can do it. I'll go as far as you demand, or as you will yourself. Without you, I'll be hanged, and I must be sure. She listened so well that she was really listening after he had ceased to speak. He had kept his grasp of her, drawing her close, and though they had again, for the time, stopped walking, his talk, for others at a distance, might have been, in the matchless place, that of any impressed tourist to any slightly more detached companion. On possessing himself of her arm, he had made her turn, so that they faced afresh to St. Mark's, over the great presence of which his eyes moved while he twiddled her parasol. She now, however, made a motion that confronted them finally with the opposite end. Then only she spoke. Please take your hand out of my arm. He understood at once. She had made out in the shade of the gallery the issue of the others from their place of purchase. So they went to them side by side, and it was all right. The others had seen them as well and waited for them, complacent enough, under one of the arches. They themselves, too, he argued that Kate would argue, looked perfectly ready, decently patient, properly accommodating. They themselves suggested nothing worse, always by Kate's system, than a pair of the children of a super-civilized age, making the best of an awkwardness. They didn't nevertheless hurry, that would overdo it. So he had time to feel, as it were, what he felt. He felt, ever so distinctly, it was with this he faced Mrs. Lauder, that he was already in a sense possessed of what he wanted. There was more to come, everything, he had by no means, with his companion, had it all out. Yet what he was possessed of was real. The fact that she hadn't thrown over his lucidity the horrid shadow of cheap reprobation. Of this he had had so sore a fear that its being dispelled was in itself of the nature of bliss. The danger had dropped. It was behind him there, in the great sunny space. So far, she was good for what he wanted. End of Book Eighth, Chapter Two Recording by Jennifer Stearns, Concord, New Hampshire